good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. We're here every Saturday at 12 noon, even when I can't speak very well. I'm sorry. But uh, we've got quite a lot of uh, very interesting material for you today. We're going to go, first of all, to America. Here in Australia, our teachers haven't been treated very well at all, particularly those in the public universities. But over in America, they're looking at much worse treatment. So our press release 870 is called In America, teachers like nurses are dying and they will remember those who forget about their safety in 2024. Now, we get this material from the Diane Ravitch blog, and she posted this report on the treatment of teachers in the USA in times of plague. As the coalition government criticises Dan Andrews and others, who to date have successfully dealt with the plague, spare a thought for those in the front line in Trump's America. And here is the article by Stephen Singer, The Silence of Our Friends is the Worst Part of the Pandemic, and our boy Oliver, well, he's a man now, actually, he's going to tell you all about what is happening to our teachers in public schools in America. Thank you, Jean. Stephen Singer has written eloquently about the rush to reopen schools without the heed to the safety of teachers. Trump and DeVos have urged schools to reopen without lifting a finger to supply the funds needed to reopen safely. Others have jumped on any statistic that encourages reopening without regard to the safety of the staff. Singer says that teachers will remember those who forgot about their safety. As the global COVID-19 pandemic rages out of control throughout most parts of the United States, teachers all across the country want to be able to do their jobs in a way that won't put themselves or their loved ones in danger. In most cases, that means remote instruction, teaching students via the internet through video conferencing software like Zoom. However, numerous leaders and organisations that historically are supportive of teachers have refused to support them here. The rush to keep classrooms open and thus keep the economy running has overtaken any respect for science, any concern for safety and any concern and any appeal to compassion. Many democratic lawmakers, school directors, union leaders and even public school advocates have repeatedly turned away, remained silent or promoted policies that will continue to put educators in danger. Thankfully, some districts have been accommodating, worrying about the safety of children as well as adults. But many others have refused to go this route, even demanding educators with compromised immune systems and other increased risk factors either get in the classroom and teach or seek some sort of financially burdensome leave. Affected teachers often wonder where their union is, where their progressive representative, where their grassroots activists who are willing to organise against charter schools and high-stakes testing. Answers? Crickets. As a result, more than 300 US teachers and other school employees have died from the virus, according to the Associated Press. In New York City alone, 72 school employees died of the virus, according to the City Department of Education. And since Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has refused to collect data on how the pandemic is affecting schools and school employees, this count is probably woefully underrepresentative of the full tragedy. About one in four teachers, nearly 1.5 million, have conditions that raise their risk of getting seriously ill from the coronavirus, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. In my own Western Pennsylvania community in the last few weeks, we buried high school employee Terry Sherwin, 60, of Greater Latrobe School, uh, Greater Latrobe School District, and elementary school employee Dana Hall, 56, of Jeanette City School District. The assertion that children cannot get the disease, which was popularized by the Trump administration, has been proven false. More than one million kids nationwide have been diagnosed with COVID-19, according to a report by the American Academy of Pediatrics. The Centers for Disease Control says most children who get the disease especially those younger than 10, are asymptomatic or only have mild symptoms but are still capable of transmitting the virus to others. 
This, along with a lack of national database, makes it incredibly difficult to accurately trace the source of an outbreak through the schools. However, in November, the CDC quietly removed controversial guidelines from its website, promoting in-person learning and instead lists it as high risk. As new scientific information has emerged, the site has been updated to reflect current knowledge about COVID-19 in schools, a spokesperson said. Yet there has been no subsequent change in the policy positions of most lawmakers, school directors, union leaders, or education activists. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much. I think that we should be very, very grateful for at least living in Australia at the moment. However, that does not mean to say that the public school teachers here in Australia have it all simple and sweet. They don't. Uh, there is a lot of evidence that many teachers are spending quite big out of their meagre salaries to make sure that children who are disadvantaged are not as disadvantaged because uh, there isn't sufficient money in the system to buy basic resources for the children. And in, in, a, in um, Sydney at the moment, there is great concern that large numbers of people in the department who service the teachers in the schools have lost their jobs as they are, are doing what they did some time ago in Victoria and decentralised the system. Decentralisation really means uh, doing away with support mechanisms from the centre, which are badly needed for children in disadvantaged schools and their teachers. But we'll have a bit of a break now and we'll come back with some more interesting material. Uh, we have a very interesting article, a year to reflect upon from the President of the New South Wales Teachers Federation, Angelo Gavrilatis, and Dale is going to bring that to us. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, in the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land. Brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism... Capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Well, uh, here we are on the Dogs Program, and before the break, we were finding out that it's perhaps better to be a teacher in Victoria or Australia than it is in the United States of America at the moment, Trump's and Betty DeVos's America, where teachers are put in the front line and allowed to die from the plague. But um, it has been a very strange and worrying year for so many of us. And the president of the New South Wales Teachers Federation who has an international reputation, of course, in teaching union affairs, Angelo Gavrilatis had this to say about the year that has been, and Dale will uh, stand in for him. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I've got Angelo's uh, article here, A Year to Reflect Upon. It's been a year like no other. At, at about this time, 12 months ago, Years of drought and environmental mismanagement were culminating in a perfect storm that would bring loss, damage, fear and pain as large swathes of New South Wales terrifyingly burned out of control. Many of our school communities were ravaged by the Black Summer fires, others in the floods that followed. Our members were quick to lend a helping hand with schools acting as a source of stability and refuge in the chaotic aftermath and subsequent reconstruction. Then the COVID-19 pandemic struck. There was little respite for teachers and principals as this public health crisis unfolded and school education was forced to swing into remote learning mode and variations thereof. It's become something of a cliche, 
but there is no other way to describe the efforts of our teachers and principals other than superhuman. They have gone over and above the call of duty, doing the very best within the constraints of the resources available to support your students and community. The year has been marred by periods of intense anxiety and stress, not helped by conflicting, contradictory and at times hypocritical advice by state and federal politicians. Nonetheless, you have risen to the challenge and provided con continuity and stability under the most trying of circumstances. Behind the scenes, Federation prior prioritises the health and well-being of the teaching service and, by extension, our students and communities. Daily, indeed some, sometimes three and four times a day, our officers will, were keeping in touch with departmental officials and other agencies doing our best to look after you so that you could look after your families and your students. It's been disappointing that policymakers too frequently treated teachers as an afterthought in the handling of the pandemic. Fortunately, it is in contrast to the high regard parents and the community have shown teachers and principals for their amazing efforts during the crisis. Research at the height of the pandemic has shown that more than 95% of the respondents across various lines of questioning were most satisfied with the work and role of their children's teachers at schools, while 91% stated they had gained more respect for the profession. Such appreciation goes to the very core of the Gallup inquiry, valuing the teaching profession and independent inquiry which has heard evidence from research experts, academics, teachers, executive staff, careers advisors, teacher librarians, school counsellors, principals, non-school based officers, indeed all classifications representing the widest variety of school settings and contexts. They've talked about the changing nature and value of your work over the past 17 years. Regressive industrial laws implemented by this New South Wales government have denied Federation the opportunity that was previously afforded unions to appear before the State Industrial Relations Commission to argue a work value case through a, a thorough examination of changes to skills, complexities and responsibilities to determine salaries. In short, the evidence for the Gallup inquiry ranges from the burgeoning daily administration work now required of the job to the lack of resources and support available to teachers and principals exacerbated by the withdrawal of departmental support under policies such as local schools, local decisions. All this amid a rapidly rising tide of mental health and disability issues in schools. The inquiry is also taking place against the backdrop of continued attacks on the public sector by the New South Wales government. While you were turning yourselves as inside out delivering teaching and learning to, in the context of a pandemic, meeting challenge after challenge, the state government was plotting a wage cut. Not content with the 2.5% salary cap it, in, it imposed with the removal of work value cases in the IRC, the Berejiklian government sought to freeze public sector wages and not pass on the annual 2.5% ration as a post-pandemic austerity measure. It lost the first round in Parliament and sent its argument to the IRC, where what could only be described as a studied insult, a 0.3% increase was passed on to public sector workers, tantamount to a handful of silver coins. It didn't stop there. In the recent state budget, the government announced a new state wage policy that now places teachers' worth at between zero and 1.5%. Not content with a wage freeze, the government thought it would be a good idea to explore the option of some more precarious employment in our system by floating the discredited notion of putting principals on individual contracts. We fought back with an army of retired principal members. Further, at the height of the pandemic, our TAFE teachers, who have not had a pay increase since November 2018, had their 2.5% annual entitlement quashed, despite having negotiated a new four-year enterprise agreement before COVID-19. We are continuing our efforts to secure salary justice for our TAFE teachers. 
In August, Federation uncovered and exposed the deceit of this government and the department with their deliberate misinterpretation of the numbers of students with disabilities in our schools. According to confidential government documents Federation obtained under Freedom of Information, official figures were more than 20,000 short of the actual number of students with disabilities in our schools. Faced with its own report's dire predictions that the exponential growth of students with disability would require thousands of extra teachers, the government proposed a solution that would shift kids out of the SSPs into units, then from units into mainstream classes. The pandemic also further exposed the sad reality of the inequity between private and public education funding. School funding remains an issue of national shame. With no path available, our public schools remain stuck at 90% of the minimum government government requirement funding required to provide students with the education they deserve. This is while state and federal governments continue to deliberately overfund private schools. The confluence of drought, catastrophic fires, floods and pandemic has taken its toll on our students. Many have not returned to their schools. Teachers have recorded a rise in mental health issues culminating at its most desperate in suicide clusters. The inequity is magnified in regional and remote settings where the infrastructure that most urban communities take for granted has yet to find its way, where broadband internet is a fantasy land and mental health services are as rare as winter rain. As the school year comes to an end, let us pause on the plight of Aboriginal education. We have work to do and it is a cause for shame. Federation will continue its proud tradition to support the struggles of our Indigenous brothers and sisters and walk together with them in acknowledging the significance and importance of the Uluru Statement from the Heart for structural change and reform. We will not fully mature as as a nation until we reconcile our past and stop the denigration and deeply insidious racism that has and continues to trample the rights and aspirations of our first peoples. And that was from Angelo Gabrielatis. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, that, that of course, is Angelo talking to New South Wales teachers. Uh, but the New South Wales Teachers Federation is, in fact, the most active throughout Australia. And uh, Angelo is in a very good position to take up the cudgels for teachers. But you can see that our teachers are not valued as they should be by the coalition government in power in New South Wales. And I think some of that applies also here in Victoria, uh, because one should actually look at where our Labor politicians send their children. But we'll have a little bit of a break, and then we'll come back. I have a very interesting letter uh, from David Zignia, and a few facts and figures about private schools who are crying poor, they really are crying very, very poor, are not going to raise their fees in the next year as they usually do. But a little bit of a break. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mawbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. 
we've been listening to um, the uh, year to reflect on from the president of the New South Wales Teachers Federation, Angelo Gabrielatis. And you might notice that he pointed out that the uh, difference between the private and public funding, private school funding, in Australia is, in fact, a national shame. Indeed it is, because throughout Australia, particularly in disadvantaged schools, our public schools are only receiving, with both the federal and state funding, uh, up to 90% of their resource standard. The resource standard requiring approximately 15000 for a secondary school pupil. Meanwhile, the uh, private schools, the wealthy private schools in particular, are crying poor because uh, their parents uh, may not be able to afford the fees they have to pay next year. And there's a very interesting article from David Zingmier from the Southern Cross University in the um, age of uh, Wednesday of this last week. Direct funds where needed is the heading. The most expensive private schools in Victoria, while charging more than 30000 a student, COVID puts school fees on ice, 50, still receive thousands of dollars per student of public funding every year. All these schools are ranked within the highest possible socioeconomic category. How can that be necessary or justified when the student resourcing standard set by the Federal Education Department at $15,000 a student. Why do private school students need more than double that amount to educate them? It's well beyond time for public funding to be directed to those students and schools that genuinely need additional funding. With more than $15 billion, and that's actually a very conservative estimate, of public funding each year being directed to private education, the government is making a mockery of equity funding and all the research that clearly shows where the public money is needed for the most disadvantaged students of whom 80%, more than 80% actually, are in our public schools. And the disadvantaged schools, of course, are in the public sector represent 95% of schools throughout Australia. So only 5% of schools in the so-called private school or independent sector are labelled disadvantaged. But um, let's have a quick look at some of the fees. Keeping in mind that it costs $15,000 a year to educate a student uh, to the highest standard in Australia. Geelong Grammar, on top of its state school and federal funding, charges $42,792 a year. Mount Scopus, not much less, $38,850. And the King David School, $37,304. Lauriston, you can get your girl in there for $36,840. Melbourne Girls Grammar, 36,784. Uh, Melbourne Grammar, 35,640. Trinity, 34,756. Wesley, much the same, 34,610. Presbyterian Ladies College, 34,008. And the Shelford Girls Grammar, who we were talking about, they're just offloaded teachers, 30 of them. Uh, they charge 33987 a year. And Kerry Baptist Grammar, 33913 Why do they need to charge these fees? David Zingier is quite right. Uh, there is something shameful about any public money going to any of those schools. But uh, we'll have a little bit of a break and then we can come back with... Um, a visitor from Tasmania, Penny, is going to be telling us uh, perhaps a better story. The tide is turning. Things are not right in the state of Australia. They are not right in the states, United States of America. They are not right in a lot of the uh, democratic countries, so-called, 
in, in the Western world because the levels of inequality are rising continually. In The Australian Educator of 2020, a lass called Cindy Tebble wrote a very interesting article called The Tide is Turning. And here is Penelope from Tasmania. Yes, she's in our in the right bubble in the times of plague and she's here in Melbourne for the moment and she's going to read the article by Cindy Tebble, The Tide is Turning. Over to you, Penny. Well, this was written on the 1st of December 2020 and um, light is on the horizon apparently in the United States, we all hope so. Um, Australia has been spared the very worst of the movement to reform public education that has swept through the United States over the past 20 years. Though in some ways, the difference is only a matter of semantics. There are no charter schools in Australia. Privatisation has been largely in the vocational sector. However, the over-reliance on test scores as a way of measuring student achievement sets up public schools to fail and teachers to get the blame for low test scores. The answer to this, according to neoliberal politicians and assorted busybodies, is to turn schools into businesses. Diane Ravitch was once a supporter of both privatisation and standardised testing. She was Assistant Secretary of Education for Research under President George H.W. Bush and was invited to the White House in 2001 when George W. Bush announced his post-election promise, the No Child Left Behind Act, a major reform based on the premise that setting high standards and measurable goals could improve individual education outcomes. She changed her mind when results didn't live up to the hype and warns that Australia's affinity for standardised testing could be a pathway to privatisation. I came to understand that testing and privatisation were really two related movements and one feeds into the other, says Ravage. A prolific author and professor of education at New York, New York University, Ravitch's new book, Slaying Goliath, is an expose of the decades-long education reform movement in the United States and the unmitigated failure by individual billionaires and corporate reformers, disruptors she calls them, to replace public schools with charter schools. Ravitch says that the very nature of standardised testing is defective and the people who believe in it have a very limited imagination about children's capacity. What the tests teach children is that there's only one right answer and if they don't get that right, then somehow they failed. But Ravitch says there's no way that everybody is going to get it perfect. This is not like going for a driver's test. In fact, failure is built into the design of a test to ensure some children will do very well and some will inevitably fail. And yet there's a chorus of people saying only perfection will be accepted if there's any failure, the school is failing, the teachers are failing. They've created this narrative of failure, which is, in Ravitch's view, a giant hoax. The chorus Ravitch refers to are who she calls the disruptors, a cabal of self-centred billionaires, including the Hoff family, the DeVos family, Betty DeVos is President Trump's Secretary of Education, the Waltons, who own Walmart, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Netflix owner Reed Hastings, who has given millions to create charter schools and reportedly spent 20 million US dollars building a luxury training ground for public school teachers in Colorado. But a far less powerful and decidedly less affluent group of volunteer parents, teachers, students, bloggers and leaders, which Ravitch calls the resistance, are fighting back to keep their public schools alive. 
They believe universal education, free and open to all, is part of the promise of democracy. And they're winning. Charter schools are no longer growing, now taking in only around 6% of students in the US, which is still 6% too many, and individual parents and schools are opting out of standardised tests. Even universities and colleges such as Harvard, Yale and the University of California are rethinking admission tests, looking at other measures such as cumulative grades and specific skills and talents to select students. She calls this reimagining education. Ravitch was moved to write Slaying Goliath after witnessing a wave of teacher strikes that started in 2018 over low salaries and lack of school funding and rolled across the U.S. winning pay rises and better budgets, even in cash-strapped states like West Virginia. And in the book's postscript, she prevents another oddly positive outcome for the public education sector as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And and this is like the New South Wales report. She recalls that as government shut down schools and children began distance education, parents suddenly suddenly discovered a newfound respect for teachers. You could hear them saying, I'm having trouble doing this with two children. How do teachers do it with 30, says Ravitch. Australian parents were learning the same lessons, and Ravitch advises that now is a good time to stop worrying about MAPLAM and PISA scores, which she says are mostly meaningless for children, but end up corrupting education. All they do is feed the narrative that our schools are failing, our teachers are failing, when the job of the school is to develop children's many different talents and abilities and interests, she says. So if you want to know how your child is doing, ask their teacher. As we try to imagine what schools will look like after the pandemic, Ravitch is eager to see a revival of the joy of learning and the joy of teaching. That would mean public schools with no standardised testing at all. And she hopes that current economic conditions won't see a diminution of the arts and the humanities, which of course we know is happening in Australia at the tertiary level. It's very bad for the social and emotional development of children not to have the opportunity to be creative, to have the chance for imaginative activities, not to be dancing or singing or learning to play an instrument. All those things teach tremendous self-discipline, whereas test-taking is a mechanical skill. And when you're finished with school, no one will ever ask you to take a standardised test again. Well, one hopes so. That's very interesting, isn't it? What wasn't mentioned, of course, is all of the the big corporations that have uh, quite a lot of money invested in the testing procedures. Um, We have heard about this earlier in this year, the Pearson uh, Group, for example. Thank you, Penny. And uh, now we'll have another little break and we'll go to a recording which Dale has very kindly made of a webinar, very interesting webinar. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. You're listening to the Dogs on 3CR, 855 AM. And now we're going to go to uh, a webinar that the AEU put online on the 25th of November this year. Uh, Karenna Haythorpe introduces it to the topic, which is what is shaping the education debate and how to position ourselves in relation to rebuilding after COVID-19. Now, um, 
The first speaker she speaks to is Michelle O'Neill, the president of the ACTU. And then the second speaker we'll be hearing is Emma Dawson, who is the executive director of Per Capita. Over to the webinar. Well, colleagues, welcome to uh, our webinar tonight. It's the second in a series of webinars that we're hosting uh, about public education. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joining you from uh, Ghana country here in the beautiful Adelaide Plains and pay my respects to elders past, present uh, and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge um, the elders uh, from the country in which you are joining us tonight and pay our respects um, to them as well, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Can I just uh, welcome our panel tonight? We're joined by Michelle O'Neill, President of the ACTU, Emma Dawson, Executive Director of Per Capita, uh, Adam Rorris, Senior Education uh, e Economist, and Doug Cameron, former Senator and Champion of Public Education. So on behalf of the AU, welcome to our webinar. This year has been a very difficult year for so many. It's a year that's brought sharp focus on the deep inequality that exists in Australia. And for our members in preschool, schools and TAFE, it's a year that's also highlighted the incredible dedication and commitment uh, of all who work in public education uh, right across Australia. It's highlighted as well the need for strong systemic support and strong political leadership to ensure that public education is set as the highest priority, ensuring the future of our children, our students and young people. And of course, the public education debate happens within a wider context of what's happening in wider society in Australia, what is happening in policy, what is happening in politics and what's happening in our communities. Right now, there are very big issues that are shaping the education debate. These include inequality, the widening gaps between the wealthy and those who live in poverty, what is happening around the tax debate, COVID-19 and its impact on communities, on families and on workers, the economic recession and what it means for jobs, skills and wages, and of course, living in a society that values and respects social justice, diversity and inclusivity for all. So the discussion today seeks to understand how these other issues are shaping the education debate and what they mean for how we can best position ourselves to advance our priority issues around securing fair funding for preschool, schools and TAFE. Michelle, I'd like to come to you as our first, um, our first speaker and uh, talk to you about the issues in relation to COVID-19, which has caused major disruption to jobs, to um, our society and to the economy. The ACTU Economic Recovery Plan sets out what we need for Australia um, post-COVID. So can you tell us about the plan and why public education is so important to rebuilding um, after uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, thanks, Karina, and hi, everybody. And I also want to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that I'm on today. I'm on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I want to pay my respects to their elders past and present. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. And yes, Karina, we're, these are not normal times, and, and it's not a normal recession. And in but I also want to start by just recognising the extraordinary work that teachers and educators have done throughout this pandemic, amazing efforts in terms of changing how you work, often where you work, having to deal with adjusting and flexibility in a way that never nobody would ever have dreamed of. And, of course, the extra needs and demands of highly stressed students and many who were struggling to participate and, of course, also parents who were trying to work out how to manage to um, both do their own jobs in many cases as well as support the jobs that you were doing. And I know that many of the, you as educators and teachers were in exactly that position too. So all credit to you for the way that you've carried us through uh, this pandemic and thanks on behalf of the movement for that. Um, look, what we say about uh, this is that one of the things at the core, Karina, of our National Economic Reconstruction Plan is the idea that um, public money should be spent for public good. And just to step back a moment, it, we realised early on that 
that what was happening during COVID-19 was in fact an exposure of the fault lines that already existed in our society and in our labour market. And one of those, a key one of those was insecure work, which I reckon is a plague in itself in terms of uh, the capacity for people to lose jobs, pay um, and their livelihoods so easily um, at the whim of an employer. And then, of course, uh, the other things of inequality that we know has been rising in our country. It, we, even through the pandemic, we've seen workers, labour having the absolute smallest share of Australia's national wealth um, at the same time as we've seen record profits. So the, what's going to working people is shrinking and, of course, what's going to business and the very rich is increasing. So inequality was always and already a problem, but one that's worsened. And uh, when we saw what the government was doing in response to the pandemic, it became really clear that uh, even though we fought and won some important things like JobKeeper with the flaws that it had in it, and of course a big flaw being talking education, the exclusion of higher education um, and of workers and migrant and visa workers from that. But uh, even when we won that, you could see them struggling as a government with the notion of spending public money in a way that was directly getting to the pockets of working people, which, of course, is what's needed for a recovery. You've got to spend money in a way that the people who get it are going to spend it. And when you give money like tax breaks to the rich, or, in fact, the biggest part of this federal budget was tax uh, breaks to business, then that just does not have the same impact in terms of saving jobs, creating jobs, and really getting us to a better recovery. So we tried to design a plan that recognised that this not everybody was treated the same, we weren't all in it together, and that there was a really big impact affecting some workers differently to others, and that we wanted to come out of this in a different way. And one of the keys to that was recognising the gender inequalities that we already had as a society but were worsened by the recession and then, of course, completely ignored by the government in their budget. We saw that and we saw that we needed to design a plan that really was based on the idea that government had to step up, that we needed to spend public money for public good. And we um, knew that education was critical to that and our national economic reconstruction plan had at its core really education in, in multiple elements of it. We knew that early childhood education was important, school education, case critically important as well as higher education. We tried to design a plan that said you've got to deal with jobs for women and men, public and private sector in cities and towns and young people as well as older workers. And we had concrete ideas. And the first one, and I'm pleased to say, was in fact one that seemed to gain about a huge amount of public support and is continuing to, was for a new early childhood education and care strategy, focused on allowing women to return to work and realising the huge economic, social and educational benefits of making sure every child has access to high-quality public education and preschool education delivered by well-paid and skilled early childhood educators. Uh, we also had as another critical element of our plan uh, a training for reconstruction plan, absolutely founded in public TAFE. And it included 150,000 free TAFE courses and wage subsidies that would go towards apprenticeships and traineeships and deliver a guaranteed job at the end. We also ha have a plan in relation to um, our tourism and hospitality hospitality sectors, which is really important for our regions. Also one in terms of public capital projects, which is critical, again, for education. Um, it's not about putting money into rich people's bathrooms, but saying that we wanted public money to go into things that would have a lasting legacy. So things like public and community housing, but importantly into schools, into TAFEs, boosting capital spending up. Um, out of where it's been in really low in the past. 
And then we had a sustainable manufacturing strategy, again, something that um, is critical to our industry, but based on the idea of having uh, a shift to low cost and sustainable renewable energy for manufacturing and really making sure we were making the products of the future and using government procurement as a really powerful lever to do that. I did just want to say that... um, as well as those two elements that were directly about education, what we know about national economic reconstruction is that government has to lead the way. It's nothing that we can leave to private enterprise. The, the notion that capital will look after people is just not what's going to lead us out of this recession and definitely not out of it in a way that's going to mean that we come back as a fairer and better society. And public education system that's fully funded is critical to a fair society and a strong economy and a strong democracy. And a recovery of this magnitude is the perfect moment to invest public money in public education. And nothing is more critical to to that recovery that is showing that education is not a privilege but a right. Mm -hmm. And universal high-quality public education from early childhood right through to adulthood is essential to a more equitable society. And and we understand that um, it's too important to leave this to the market. And it's a legacy that current high levels of public expenditure should be leaving, not just for this generation, but for the next. We support strong government expenditure and investment. Now is the time to spend, but we want to see it delivering a long-term legacy that will make a difference for Australia and a better Australia. And we reckon public education is critical to that. I'll leave it there. Thanks. Thanks very much, Michelle. Um, and it really, it really, it's a, it's a fantastic um, economic recovery plan that really highlights for me just how much work we have to do to uh, embrace that fundamentally important principle, which is for the public good. I'll now uh, go to Emma. Uh, Emma, I've got a question for you. Um, COVID this year has really highlighted the deep uh, inequality that's been exp- you know, experienced by so many in Australia for such a long time. I'm wondering if you can share with us uh, the policy settings that you think are needed to address uh, a public ed- education agenda within that context. Yes, thanks, Corinna, and thank you for asking me to be with you. Tonight I'm coming to you from uh, the land of the Boonurrung people of the Kulin Nation here in Victoria and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, Yes, the COVID shock has been unlike anything we've seen for a 100 years, uh, and it has certainly upended our economic and social systems in a way that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that things were rosy beforehand and that there is anything particularly good to snap back to, as the Prime Minister put it early on in this pandemic. Uh, certainly the inequality that has been rising in Australian society, as it has around the world, um, was particularly affecting children in Australia. Um, we had a growing rate of child poverty in Australia. We had a growing uh, number of children much higher than the OECD average of children starting school with some form of disadvantage, educational or other disadvantage, one in five. Um, and we had increasingly uh, limited access to the kinds of uh, education and vocational training that people needed, uh, not just to rebuild their careers and their, and their job prospects after this pandemic, but in the face of globalisation and automation and the, the need to adapt to climate change as well. Um, so this is a great opportunity as much as it's a great crisis, as Michelle said, to build back something better than we had before. Um, Public education right through from early childhood to adulthood and throughout the life course is absolutely key to doing this. Uh, The government has taken on more debt than we've seen for a long time, uh, very unwillingly, I think, at a federal level, um, very begrudgingly and had to be dragged there by uh, the ACTU, the union movement and others. Um, I'm not at all concerned about that debt and we shouldn't be concerned about that debt because uh, the public, the cost for a start, the cost of public debt is, is as low as it's ever been. But to rebuild a nation after a shock like this, um, there is no alternative but for government to invest in the future. There are a lot of debates about what that investment should be and economists and policymakers will debate whether one form of infrastructure build is better than another, whether ongoing investment in social infrastructure is is worthwhile. I 
personally believe it is across the board. Some people will say, no, that's recurrent spending, so we should only fund capital works. But the one thing on which all economists agree is that the greatest use of public money and public debt is to invest in our children's future and in education and to build a more resilient, more knowledgeable, more skilled labour force and a more skilled populace and a more informed people. Um, education is the great return. We know that for every dollar we spend on early childhood education, we get a $2 return over that child's lifetime, just in simple economic terms. But more broadly, we're building a populace that is more informed and engaged, and we're giving people the opportunity to achieve the most, to achieve their full potential and be fully participating members of society. Um, at a federal level, we don't seem to have seen a lot of recognition of this. Um, the, the debt is something that the, that the coalition government's very afraid of, um, and they do seem to be putting it into places that don't that don't promise to have a long return. So Michelle talked about funding bathroom renovations. I don't think there's anything crazier than using public debt to increase private household wealth at the expense of a broader economic return. The threat to our children is not that they'll be saddled with a large debt in future. It's that we won't use that money to invest in the parts of our economy that will have a return over their lifetime and over their children's lifetime and our grandchildren's lifetime. So early childhood education um, is a passion of mine, um, as is public school education, and I think it's time that we started to treat education of three- and four-year-olds in particular in the same way that we treat school education. It should be universally accessible. It should be, if not free, which is my preference, then as affordable as possible, um, and I think we can get to free uh, if we start uh, with bold ideas now. But also the provision and, and the running, what we've seen in the running down of funding for vocational education under this government over the last seven years is exactly the opposite of what every expert around the world will tell you needed to be done even before this crisis as we're facing a changing world of work. Um, vocational training and skills education should absolutely be available to people, not just as they're leaving school and, and commencing their career, but throughout their life course in order to ensure that they are able to take the skills they need with them and adapt to the changing nature of work. The um, size of the, the borrowing or the, the debt that the government's taken on is eye-watering, but what's really worrying is that they're not putting it where it needs to be and not putting it into the kinds of investments that we know will rebuild, not only rebuild our economy, but allow us to grow in a way that's sustainable and inclusive and that gives every Australian child and young person in particular the best chance in life. Um, I am very proud this week to be a Victorian because the Victorian state budget has, has picked up a lot of what the federal budget did not do. And so we have seen a really targeted investment here in Victoria in free kinder for three- and four-year-olds next year in a massive expansion of before- and after-school care, um, investment in 160 public schools with 6,400 jobs, um, $1.6 billion to support children with disabilities with funding and support in the public education system, 4,000 tutors in schools and a billion dollars going into TAFE for 80,000 new free TAFE places and critically 50,000 short course places to enable people to retrain and reskill. That's what an investment budget in the face of a recession looks like um, and there's, there's now a lot of you know political argy-bargy did Daniel Andrews do this to embarrass the federal government. Um, I don't care if it embarrasses the federal government. In fact, I hope it does embarrass the federal government into doing something similar uh, because we need this nationwide. So in order to address inequality, the best possible investment we can make of any is in education, starting in those early childhood years when we know children um, of three and four years old, if they can get that investment early on and start school on a level playing field, that nullify so many of the other inequalities, whether they be uh, cultural or social or socioeconomic, uh, that they will face. And it's the best investment we can make in our kids. Ensuring that we have, and we already have some of the best public schools and best public school teachers in the world, in the world but ensuring that they get the support they need 
I have a seven-year-old child who was just learning to read when we went into lockdown here in Melbourne. I already thought her teachers were heroes, but having tried to support her with online learning uh, over the last six months, I am in awe of, of the teachers and the way um, that they engage with so many kids and and kids of disparate needs and different needs, which is what the public school system does. It takes everybody and it treats them all equally. Um, and that, to me, is a very precious thing. Um, we need more investment to support those teachers and those children. And then we need a really strong recommitment um, to vocational and TAFE education, uh, vocational education and, and really giving um, young people, but also older workers and people throughout their life course, access to the skills that they need, not only lifts individual families and individuals' ability to fulfil their potential and to live a good life, but it lifts our whole country. It increases our economic growth, it increases our social cohesion, and it just makes us a much better place to live. Um, so I can't understand why any government going into this much debt wouldn't be targeting it at, at education. It's not a left or right issue. It's just a simple, common sense, good idea. Thanks very much, Emma. Well, we have to thank Dale for uh, preparing that webinar for, it, for us. Uh, we, we here in the dogs fully endorse the idea that public money should be for the public good, which means public education, not private education. And uh, we'll be hearing some more of these speakers. They have quite a lot of interesting things to say and a few good hints that perhaps they could give our governments about what to do post the plague. But, um, well, we hope that uh, perhaps they have learned something uh, from this year, our governments, but uh, we're not holding our breath. However, we, our time has gone, and I'd like to thank Dale and Oliver and Penny uh, for joining me today to produce this program. But it's far for now.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.